But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed. He'll be blessed in what he does. Erwin McManus is an author and pastor, and he writes that his son Aaron was five or six when he began asking me, what does God's voice sound like? He says, I didn't know how to answer. A few years later, Aaron went off to his first junior high camp in the middle of the week. I went up with another pastor from our church to see our kids, and Aaron, I learned, had started to assault another kid, but had been held back by his friends. He was unrepentant, wanted to leave camp, pulled together his stuff, and shoved it into the car. I asked him for a last talk with me before we drove away. We sat on two large rocks in the middle of the woods. Aaron, he asked, is there any voice inside you telling you what you should do? Yes, he nodded. What's the voice telling you? That I should stay and work it out? Can you identify that voice? Yes, he said immediately. It's God. It was the moment, Erwin writes, that I'd waited for. Aaron, I said, do you realize what just happened? You heard God's voice. He spoke to you from within your soul. Forget everything else that's happened. God spoke to you, and you were able to recognize him. I'll never forget, he says, Aaron's dug-in response. Well, I'm still not doing what God said. I explained to him that that was his choice, but this is what would happen if he rejected the voice of God coming from deep within and chose to disobey his guidance. If he did that, his heart would become hardened and his ears would become dull. If he continued on this path, there would be a day when he would never again hear the voice of God. There would come a day when he would even deny that God speaks or has ever spoken to him. But if he treasures God's voice, however it comes to him, through the scriptures or through his conscience and responds to him with obedience, then his heart would be softened and his ears would always be able to hear the whisper of God into his soul. Aaron chose to say, to stay, he says, I'm grateful for that. If he had chosen differently, he would have begun the path toward nominal discipleship. Perhaps he never would have rejected the faith overtly. He might have even chosen to be a faithful attender at a church and been by everyone else's estimation a good man, but he would no longer be a close Jesus follower. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. In one of our elder meetings uh, recently, the conversation turned for reasons that I'm not entirely sure to preaching styles, uh, mine in, in particular. And uh, as I was listening, the, the comment that stands out in my mind was one of the elders who shall remain anonymous said, the thing about Larry is that he's easy to listen to. And so I'm... I'm I'm listening, I'm thinking about this, I'm searching for the compliment that I'm sure is in there, but all I can think of is Larry, the easy listening pastor. <laughs> Larry, the Muzak pastor. You know, Larry, the elevator music pastor. And, um, you know, I, I think this explains why some of you are so well rested after my sermons on a, on a, on a Sunday morning. Um, but... <laughs> but if you come 
on a Sunday morning to Northwake and you sit under my teaching uh, merely because it is pleasant to hear or, or merely because you enjoy it, then I have failed you terribly. See, the goal of this is not to craft an easy listening experience for you. It is not to entertain you. The goal of this time is to change your life. That that together we would increasingly live like Christ. That increasingly we would please our Father who is in heaven. That increasingly we would be useful to Him. That we would live lives that as a result of those things would bring us increasing joy. In a word, the goal of this time is application, not education, not entertainment, most certainly. And I would say without question, that is the goal of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as well. The goal of the Sermon on the Mount is whatever you are going to do with it. What are you going to do with the Sermon on the Mount? You know, if if you were to sit here and listen to Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount read aloud, and I did this this week, I have it on uh, CD on on my computer, and I listened to it, it would take about 15 minutes for you to listen to the entire Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew. Now, over about the past 20 weeks or so, I have preached and others on this sermon for about 800 minutes. That's over 13 hours of the Sermon on the Mount, and you should know I felt rushed uh, during that time. Over those 20 weeks, those 13 plus hours of listening and thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, what have you put into practice? How are you different now than you were 20 weeks ago? What is the thing that you simply must put into practice based on what you've been learning from the Sermon on the Mount? Today, we want to review the Sermon on the Mount together with answering that question as our singular goal. What must I do in response to Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount? So if you want to open up your Bibles to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we're going to review the sermon, or at least some of the the great themes of the sermon, and that's the question that I want to be pressing on your mind as you listen today. You would be asking God, God, what must I do? What's the thing I must do based on the teaching of Jesus in this sermon? And I'd like to pray for us towards that end, if I could. Would you bow with me? Father, we are good listeners, 13 plus hours logged on the Sermon on the Mount, listening to teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And a lot of times we think if we've listened well and we've learned well, then we've done well, and I know that you don't think about it that way. So God, help us today to be doers of the word, 
I pray that by your spirit and your word proclaimed today, you'd press into our hearts, into our minds, into our hearts, that which we must do in response to this amazing sermon your son Jesus has taught us. So God, release your spirit amongst us now that every one here, every single one here, would have clarity and have faith to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount is really a description of life lived in the kingdom of heaven. What is it like to live in the kingdom of heaven? The Sermon on the Mount tells us that it is both a mandate for those of us who are followers of Christ. This is the way we must live. And it's an invitation to everyone looking in from the outside. It paints a picture of a beautiful life lived before God as king in his kingdom. And it's an invitation for you to come on in and join us. But life in the kingdom revolves around, not us, but life in the kingdom revolves around the king. And in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, God is king. And life in the kingdom revolves around him. And in the kingdom, most amazingly, we get to call that king father. Jesus says it over and over again. And you're going to have to advance the slides for me, I think. Thank you. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We get to call this king, this greatest of kings, Father. You know, 15 times Jesus refers to God as Father in the Sermon on the Mount. In a 15-minute sermon, 15 times. 14 of those times, he's talking about him being your father or our father. And why why is that so significant? Um, I think it's because of the way fathers When fathers have it right, it's the way that fathers love. There's a recent article in Fast Company magazine about a very successful man named David Kelly. Kelly is the founder of what many regard as the premier design firm in the country, Ideo, and a professor at Stanford University for more than 30 years. He is a creative genius. Unfortunately, at age 56, Kelly discovered a lump on his body, and the doctors told him he had cancer. And the article says that what ensued for him was sheer hell. Chemo, surgery, radiation, mouth sores, a throat so raw he could barely swallow, nausea so severe he couldn't concentrate enough to read or even watch TV. He says, I spent nine months in a room trying not to throw up. The treatment wrecked his saliva glands and his taste buds. He lost 40 pounds. He's a happily married man, though, and he has one very precious daughter. And as Kelly struggled through the difficult emotions that come with this kind of experience, he discovered his reason to live. And he says this about his daughter. He says, at first you think, I don't want to miss her growing up. He says, that's motivating, but not that motivating. It's when you manage to get out of yourself and start thinking of her that you get the resolve to continue. When you think, I don't want her not to have a father then you want to stay alive. What gave Kelly a reason to endure the suffering of his treatment was not the pleasure he would get out of experiencing life with his daughter, as wonderful as that would be. Kelly realized that what truly motivated him was the benefit he could bring to his daughter, 
what motivated Kelly at the deepest level was selfless, sacrificial love for another. See, that's the way fathers love when they love right. And in the kingdom of heaven, we call the king father, even daddy. And oh, how he loves us. So much so that he would enter into a pact with his son, Jesus, that he would die that wretched death on that wretched cross to demonstrate the love of God for us. See, life in the kingdom revolves around the king, and we, we get to call him Father. And it's in the context of that overarching relationship with the king in the kingdom that there are several great themes in the Sermon on the Mount that I just want to underscore for you today. There are about four of them that talk about the relationship that someone in the kingdom is to have with the great king, with their father. And the first of those great themes is this. You want to live in the kingdom in the favor of the king. You want to live in the favor of the king. There's an article by um, a guy named Bill Glass. He cites that the FBI studied the 17 kids who shot their classmates in towns like Paducah, Kentucky, and Pearl, Mississippi, and Littleton, Colorado. All 17 shooters had only one significant thing in common. They all had a father problem. He says, there's something about it when a man doesn't get along with his father. It makes him mean. It makes him dangerous. It makes him angry. He says, on the day before Father's Day, I was in North Carolina in a juvenile prison. I ate lunch with three boys. I asked the first boy, is your dad coming to see you tomorrow on Father's Day? He said, no, he's not coming. Why not? He's in prison. I asked the second boy the same question, and I got the same answer, he says. I asked the third one why his dad wasn't coming, and he said, he got out of prison about nine months ago, and he's doing good, and... And I'm proud of my father. He's really going to be a good dad to me, and he's going to go straight. I could tell he was protesting so strongly because something was still wrong. So I said, so how many times has he been here to see you since he got out nine months ago? He said he hasn't made it out yet. Why not? Well, he lives way, way away. Where does he live? He lives in Durham. Durham is two hours away. Bill writes, I had come 1,500 miles to visit this boy. His dad couldn't come two hours. He said, there are a lot of fathers who are really deserters. When I'm in a prison, I always challenge inmates to bless their kids. He says, if you want to keep your kids out of prison, dads, bless them. The blessing of the father is of critical importance. The blessing of our Heavenly Father is of supreme importance. You know, about nine times in this sermon, Jesus talks about what it means to be blessed by God. Where that happens, what it looks like, where you live, if you want to live in the favor of the great King, of your your Heavenly Father. Another ten times, he raises the idea of what it means to be rewarded by God and why that's so significant. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, 
and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says that the reward and the blessing of your heavenly Father is so significant, so amazing that you'll rejoice in the midst of persecution and insult and slander if you just have that one thing, the reward and the blessing of your heavenly Father. You want to live in the favor of the King. This is the life that you've always wanted to live. It's the, it's the life that you were made for. It's the life you were bought by Christ on the cross for. Ask the question this morning, what must I do to live more fully in the favor of this great king? What must I do? What must I do to live in the favor of this great king? Jesus answers that in the opening verses of the sermon. Let's remember them together as Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. You want to live in the favor of the king, the place where the blessing of God is poured out on your life most freely. What is the one thing out of that list of being poor in spirit and mourning and meek and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and merciful and pure in heart and peacemakers and being persecuted. What's the one thing that you must become to increasingly have God bless your life? And what's the one thing you must do to move towards that? Mine is the one in verse 5. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. And so I'm wrestling with, I'm praying about, I'm studying, I'm journaling, I'm thinking, I'm applying that. What's yours? What's the one thing you must do to increasingly live in the favor of our great king? See, life in the kingdom revolves around the king. You want to live in his favor. Second great theme that's throughout the Sermon on the Mount that I want to underscore this morning is that life in the kingdom is marked by trusting the king. Life in the kingdom is marked by trusting the king. In chapter 6, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and a body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, 
will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? See, when you don't have what you need, what you really need, and you're worried about it, the only antidote to worry is to trust in your Father, the great King, that He knows your need and He cares about you. John Ortberg, uh, in an article for Leadership Journal, cites psychologist Jonathan Haidt, um, who had a hypothetical exercise that he liked to do. He said, imagine that you have a child, and for five minutes you're given a script of what that child's life would be, and you get an eraser. You can edit the script. You can take out whatever you want. So you read in a script that your child will have a learning disability in grade school. Reading, which comes easily for some kids, will be laborious for yours. In high school, your kid will make a great circle of friends, and then one of them will die of cancer. After high school, this child will actually get into the college they wanted to attend. And while there, there will be a car crash, and your child will lose a leg and go through a difficult depression. After a few years later, your child will get a great job and then lose that job in an economic downturn. Your child will get married, but then go through the grief of separation. You get this script for your child's life and have five minutes to edit it. What would you erase? Wouldn't you want to take out all the stuff that would cause them pain? He says, I'm part of a generation of adults called helicopter parents. Because we are constantly trying to swoop into our kids' educational life, relational life, sports life, etc., to make sure no one is mistreating them, no one is disappointing them. We want them to experience one unobstructed success after another. He says, one Halloween, a mom came to our door to trick or treat. Why didn't she send in her kid? Well, she says, the weather's a little bad. She was driving so he didn't have to walk in the mist. But why didn't you send him to the door? Well, he'd fallen asleep in the car, she said, so she didn't want to have to wake him up. He says, I felt like saying, why don't you eat all his candy and get his stomach ache for him too? Then he can be completely protected. If you could wave a wand, if you could erase every failure, setback, suffering, and pain, Are you sure it would be a good idea? Would it cause your child to grow up to be a better, stronger, more generous person? Is it possible that in some way people actually need adversity, setbacks, maybe even something like trauma to reach the fullest level of development and growth? See, life in the kingdom is to be marked by trust that God, the great king, Our Father knows our needs, even when we need to suffer. And trust in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, shows up in a couple of inseparable ways. First, it shows up in submission to Jesus' authority. There's a series of sayings that sound like this in the fifth chapter of Matthew. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says, you heard it was said, but I tell you. And trust is evidenced by submission to Jesus' supreme authority over our lives. In a related way, trust is demonstrated in obedience to Jesus' teaching. He says in chapter 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice 
is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Trust plays out in submission to Jesus' authority that's revealed in obedience to his teaching that plays out primarily in the way we treat other people. So much so that Jesus says, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. See, we're not to be angry. We're supposed to reconcile. We're not to commit adultery, not even in our minds. We're to be pure in heart. We're not to divorce. We're to be faithful. We're to love even our enemies. We're not to judge. Jesus says, trust evidence itself in submission to his authority and obedience, especially in the way we treat others. And he would add to that, it plays out in the way we pray. Prayer is evidence of trust in God. That's why he says, this is how you're supposed to pray. Give us today our daily bread and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We are to express in prayer our trust in God for our daily needs, physical and spiritual. What must you do to demonstrate your trust in God by your obedience? What must you do to evidence your trust in God by your obedience. Life in the kingdom revolves around the king, living in his favor and trusting him. Jesus tells us in his great sermon. Third theme he develops is that we must live in his favor and, and trust him. And we, almost, we also must um, treasure him. In chapter 6 he says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not principally talking about having better stuff in heaven, though I'm sure the stuff is better there. It's talking about the one that we will treasure in heaven. It's about who will be our treasure in heaven. And in some ultimate sense, Jesus says these are mutually exclusive treasures. No one can serve two masters Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus says that life in the kingdom is all about treasuring God above all else. To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, Jesus says. That's life in the kingdom. So what do you seek first? How do you start your day? To what or whom do you give your best time? What won't you skip or miss or compromise on? Is your life marked by supremely seeking God above all else? What must you demote from that enthroned spot this morning? And what must you do to seek God first in that place as your greatest treasure. In Jesus' sermon, life in the kingdom revolves around the king, and he says, in the kingdom, people treasure the king. They call him father. Last thing, Jesus says, in the kingdom, those of us who are in the kingdom, we proclaim the king. We represent the king. In 
the beginning of his sermon, he says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything. Except be thrown out and trampled by men. You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a lamp or light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who's in heaven. And this salt and light life happens from being like Christ, from following Christ, from living the life that is blessed by the King. It comes from loving our enemies. We are to be heralds of the King in all of our relationships. In a very broken world, we are the ones that God has entrusted to give out to this world invitations to His kingdom. And one of Rob Craig's favorite verses describes this beautifully in Acts chapter 17. God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of them. So you live where, you're, where you live so you can help your neighbors seek him. You work where you work so you can help your coworkers seek him. You go to school where you go to school so that you can help your schoolmates, your classmates seek him. That's our mission. How is God wanting you to represent him where you work and live and go to school? What must you do to represent him there? Most importantly, I think, in addition to all these themes in this sermon, Jesus is inviting you to make sure that you're in the kingdom. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. Don't think you're in, only to be shocked one day that you're not. He says, pass through me into the kingdom. Pass through the narrow gate, on the the narrow way that leads to life. He says in the closing verses of the sermon, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is inviting you today to make sure you're in the kingdom. What must you do to make sure you're in the kingdom? Today, at the close of our service, we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a church family. And we gather at this table and we share in a thing called communion where we commune with Christ. We share a meal with him and the meal reminds us, it helps us remember of the depth of the love of God for us such that Christ's body would be broken for our sins and his blood would be shed 
He would die for our sins. The scriptures say that we do this, we proclaim this, until he comes when we celebrate the table. And one day, the kingdom of God is going to come in its fullness. People talk about the kingdom this way. They say, it's already, and it's not yet. We already taste of it, but it's not yet fully here, not fully manifest. And when that happens, when the kingdom comes and the king comes in his fullness, there's another table that we get to sit at. Revelation describes it. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. That's the church. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And so today, as we take this table, we proclaim his death and his resurrection on our behalf until he comes and until we sit with him at that table, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And until that day, we strive to live in the king's favor and to trust him and to treasure him and to represent him. This table today is an act of worship. It's an act of obedience. What act of obedience must you do today to worship your king in response to the Sermon on the Mount? What's the one great willingness today when you come to this table that you would lay down as an act of worship to God and say, God, by your grace, I will do this thing in response to the teaching of your son in the Sermon on the Mount? Let me pray for us as we approach the table. Father, here here we are again, ready to come to the table, needing to come to the table, needing to remember. And you remember that your son did, in fact, let his body be broken and his blood be shed for us because of your love for us. And we need to remember and we need to proclaim, too, that He'll be back. He's coming again. The kingdom is coming in its fullness and the king will be reigning and ruling in ways that we long for and hope for. And what a celebration, what a feast that will be. And so God, as we come to this table today, we want to please you. We want to sit with you. We want to receive grace from you that we need as we approach your throne. We want to offer to you our obedience as worship. God, the thing that you're speaking to us about that we must do, we commit to you to do by your grace, for your pleasure, as we come to the table now. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body 
it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he reminded them that this was his blood, the new covenant that was in his blood that procured forgiveness of sins for them. That made them white as snow in the eyes of a holy, holy, holy God. And he said, do this also in remembrance.